welcome to the Coach Steve Clark Show, where he will encourage, inspire, and equip coaches, players, and parents who will in turn motivate and help others to promote the great game of tennis, foster sportsmanship, and develop greater players and people. Thanks for joining us, and here's your host, Steve Clark. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Coach Steve Clark PhD Show, uh, where the aim is to encourage, inspire, and equip coaches, players, and parents uh, who in turn inspire and equip others to promote tennis, uh, foster sportsmanship, and develop greater players and people. Uh, so thanks for joining me, and I hope you just can sit back and relax and enjoy the conversation as I always do. And my guest today, I'm really excited, is calling all the way from Tel Aviv, Israel, Alon Kakshori. Uh, we will be discussing high performance in general and the mental side of tennis, particularly gleaning from his background as an agent of professional tennis players and just dealing with uh, mental side, uh, not only um, just with tennis players, but just business and life. Um, uh, he was a uh, agent for world number ones, including Novak Djokovic and Marat Safin. And uh, for many of your lifelong learners, uh, and maybe correct me on this uh, alone if I'm incorrect, but uh, there's a lot of people out there that uh, maybe they don't know, but I think Tel Aviv means uh, Spring Hill because of tells or mounds and mounds of cities over the years being buried and, and resurrected and buried and resurrected. And then uh, Viv means spring. So doesn't that mean Spring Hill, I think? Um, and uh, so you've learned something. Al- is that correct? Absolutely, it is. Yeah, that's what it means. So Alone is a current member of the ATP Council. He's written a helpful The Ultimate Guide to High Performance. And uh, his insights are not just for tennis, as I mentioned, but business and uh, and life pursuits. And we'll be discussing what makes a mentally tough tennis player, how to become a tough competitor, what shapes our practice and how to play like we practice better, uh, what to do after painful losses, how to balance the passion and drive to win, and the ability to, quote-unquote, not care so much about the outcome. All these and more are seen from the perspective of what separates great players from good players at everyday level and what separates the better even among great players. And so for all of you out there listening, I'm really looking forward to this conversation, and I'd like to welcome Alone. So how are you doing, my friend? Thanks, Stephen. I'm super excited to be on your show. I'm great, and I'm looking forward for this conversation. Well, good. Well, let's get started. Um, he's a busy man, so we have a lot to talk about. But before we do that, I'd like uh, our listeners to hear a bit about about yourself. Uh, what got you involved in tennis, alone? Well, it, uh, it is a long story. As a <laughs> kid, as a small kid, I had all sorts of um, physical and learning issues and um, the Swiss schooling system wanted to put me in a school for kids with special needs and luckily my parents resisted that they put me in an international school but I always had this dream to go to a public Swiss school to do what my fellow friends do and my parents got me a trial month at a private Swiss school it was like in fifth grade fifth primary grade and I was extremely motivated. I went there. I worked really hard. I gave it all I could. And then at the end of the month, my mother and me, we had a meeting with the headmaster and my class teacher. We were sitting in a room. I was nervous like hell. <laughs> and then the headmaster started speaking, and he started saying, we love Alan, but unfortunately, he's not cut for this school. 
and I was devastated. And so I went home and I locked myself in a room and then I switched on the TV and I watched um, a tennis match as I often did. And as I watched that match, I had this thought. I was asking myself, what do tennis players do when they have a disappointing loss? Do they throw their towels and just give up? Or do they make a commitment to themselves to get up and become stronger than ever? And in that moment, I decided that I wouldn't let other people determine the outcomes of my life. And so my passion to tennis started by being inspired through these tennis players to really do something out of my life and not let other people decide where I would go. And then my father and me, we shared this passion for tennis, and he came up with this crazy idea to start a tennis tournament in Russia. At the time, still um, being a communist country, where my father went a lot for business, and he had no clue about tennis. He actually hired Gene Scott, the late Gene Scott, um, who you may know. And um, so they started this event, and it was an amazing uh, experience for me because as a 15-year-old kid, I went there and saw what my father had built up, and I just fell in love with the environment. I fell in love with getting to know some of the tennis players. And I decided then and there that I wanted to become an agent and that I would love to run tennis events. And I always had these mental games of being like a professional tennis player, but I wasn't practicing to become a tennis player. But through a lot of coincidences, I first of all started managing players and very early on in my career signed Mahat Safin, who won the US Open within a year of signing him. And that really started my business in terms of being an agent. Yeah. And I also continued doing what my father did with running events. I ran events in Uzbekistan, Thailand, and China. And uh, I was really living my dream job. And uh, I still do in many ways. I did some changes. We can talk about those uh, in a minute. But um, that's my story. That's awesome. Well, hey, let's get right into it. You made the the discuss, the uh, the point about mental. So, in your the ultimate guide of high performance, um, you mentioned in chapter one, you say the number one way to get your competitive edge in tennis, and we're going to get right into the mental side. Alone, you mentioned so often we think greatness is abundant out there, and in many ways it is. Um, there are a lot of great performers, athletes, and you mentioned rightly so, very few make it elite. And you gave a great a great little point here, and I think a lot of people can learn from this. You said 70 junior Grand Slam winners between 1997 and 2007, only three won a Grand Slam, uh, uh, Grand Slam uh, or made it to the final. And I'm going to ask my audience, and I'm going to pause real quick, who do you think those three are? So I'll give them a couple seconds to think there. And it's uh, Fed, Murray, and Andy Roddick. And only 16 made it in the top 10. You know, that's that's not a lot. And, uh, you know, because a lot of times people think and, and here's something, an encouragement for kids out there. You know, there are there are players on tour who make millions and have never. Well, at least I know one who's never won a tournament and he retired recently. But, you know, even if a player doesn't beat everybody and doesn't win every tournament doesn't mean you're not going to progress sometime. You're not going to, you know, uh, make a great, uh, great player. Well, you mentioned in here what separates there's uh, 51% of the points, like Nadal, they win, yet what separates those players? They can still lose after winning more points, more games, 
like you mentioned, Fed did in the 2019 uh, final. So among all these great players, it's only a fraction that separates them. And what is the key component? And you said it's relentless mental toughness. So I was just uh, wanting you to maybe uh, chime in on that right now uh, as we get started. Sure. And um, I mean, there's a lot of aspects to mental toughness, but one of them, I'll share one of the mental um, toughness aspects, and then I'll share what I think might be the characteristic of uh, really the best players and why some guys make it from junior tennis and others don't. So mental toughness really means being able to perform at your best in competitive situations or whenever you need it most. And the key distinction here is you can be a great player but a poor competitor. You can practice well, you can play great practice matches, you can really have all the skills to be world-class, but then every time you hit the tennis court, you become extremely nervous. When you lose a match, you become so devastated, like you just barely recover. And mental toughness really comes down to the capability to control your thoughts, feelings, and actions so that they really match the situation you face. And it's a skill that I personally believe you can develop. You're not born with it. I, I think even great players like Roger Federer didn't always have the skill of being extremely mentally tough. But what they did have, and to me this is the number one criteria to really being successful at anything, I call it escalating professionalism. And what that means is that everyone knows that to be a good tennis player, you need to practice a few hours on the tennis court. And then when you play matches, ideally, you show up with a good attitude and you really fight your best. And that's already quite difficult. Not everyone can do it. I would say, let's say 10% of everyone who tries to become a professional tennis player does manage to do that. But to be a top junior, you probably already need to master that skill. Now, what's the very best guys, the top 100 guys, and then the top 50 guys, and then the top 10 guys, and then the number one guys do differently is that year after year, they escalate their, their professionalism. They start adding habits on and off the court that contribute just another millimeter to their success. And I love sharing the story of Novak, who always did that. And you may remember that in his young years, he wasn't the physically strongest player, and he had a lot of health issues. And it was something he kept working on, but I remember in 2010, when he played the U.S. Open final against Rafael Nadal, and he lost that match, you could really see in his face that he knew that unless he would change something in his life, he would be doomed to being the third best player at best. But Rafa and Roger, they were at that time simply an edge better than him. And that's when he decided to really upgrade his fitness regime. He started changing his diet. He started doing things like mindfulness practices. And he really drastically turned his lifestyle into matching the goal of becoming the world's best tennis player. I really like the way you put that. You can be a great player, but a poor competitor. That's uh, that's really good. And 
not stopping there. The whole point of our discussion is to help even not only, you know, really good juniors, college players, and aspiring pros, but just your club player, other players. How do you get to be more of a competitor? You know, some people um, maybe are not just, you know, they're not, they may say they're competitive, et cetera, but, you know, part of that is learning what is it, you know, to be a great competitor, you know. Um, they may have great strokes, et cetera, but what is it to be a great competitor? And I think we're going to kind of touch on some of those things here. You you suggest um, that uh, this relentless mental toughness affects all phases, and uh, you mentioned they're calm under pressure, uh, days you don't want to practice, you stay obsessed with the dream. Now I think this is really important here. They stay obsessed with the dreams, and we we you and I talked about this prior. That uh, for example, grit, you know, by uh, Dweck, you know, talking about this, you know, growth mindset, and you just sticking in there, you know. Um, uh, and Duckworth, you know, the research there, but, uh, so being, staying obsessed with the dream, um, how, you know, I've, I've talked to some pros and, uh, you know, who've come off tour and, you know, some are more obsessed than others. And, you know, uh, do you think an obsession for you here, you mentioned it with dreams, uh, how does that motivate, you know, different levels of people? I mean, uh, for example, a, a number one junior might want to be number one in the world. I've had players like that before who wanted that. Uh, and then, it, you know, your goals change as you see some things. And um, maybe speak on that a little bit with your experience. Sure. So, first of all, you know, there's an evolution. I think when kids start playing tennis at the age, let's say, five, six, seven, whatever, initially it's because... Uh, it's fun, and parents feel that the kids might enjoy stepping on the tennis court. Then it shifts that the parents want the kid to persist with doing one thing because often, you know, they can learn. You know, if you start learning piano and you just stop because you don't feel like it, it might not be a great lesson. Maybe it's good also sometimes to push yourself a little bit um, to things that you start. And, and at one stage, though, so then the next step might be that kids start to develop um like dreams, you know, they want to be better than their peers. They want to be the cool kid. They want to be the best. They want to show off. Um, and that's when they start developing dreams, like extrinsic dreams. And I think these dreams are important as well. I think it's great to dream about winning Wimbledon or winning a, a college event or like even just being the best player of your club and like uh, picturing what that would feel like. But at one stage, and I think this is a crucial moment, players need to develop this intrinsic motivation of wanting to compete for the sake of becoming a better player. And I think, you know, if we look at the world, like what drives progress is competition in the end of the day. And there's negative competition, you know, when... We just want to be better than other people. We'll do whatever it takes. We'll cheat. We'll be ugly human beings. And there's positive competition where we inspire each other to get the best out of each other. And where we also inspire to be amazing human beings and where we picture bigger goals for our success, meaning we picture challenging ourselves, challenging our limits, making our parents proud, inspiring other people, making our country proud, being an ambassador for our country, creating a charity and giving back to kids, or just being a role model for people wherever we go. Once we develop this kind of motivation, 
that's when our tank of energy just becomes so much bigger and we can tap into all these resources um, during difficult matches or during difficult times that allows us to keep going even when most people would quit. You know, uh, I couldn't agree more. That's 100%. You know, there's actually, I have a, a little discussion on my website about uh, the actual nature of competition. Um, and because, you know, from the Latin competere, it's you, you're struggling against somebody to develop yourself better. So that's why when you see these great matches, let's say, you know, they've, they've just you know, poured their heart and soul out into a match and they hug afterwards. You know, it's like, man, you gave, you made me play my best. I lost, but I totally respect you. And this match is one for the lifetime, you know, and, and that's, that's where they, that's what everybody enjoys watching this battle, you know, and it's uh, that, and they're bringing out the best of each other. And that's why the greats like, you know, Roger and Nadal, when they play each other, it's, they're disappointed, but at the same time, they just bring the best out of each other, and that's how they get better. So you're you're dead on on that one. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, you mentioned. I think this is really a great point. You mentioned the most important thing is this belief that through hard work and effort we achieve amazing things. You know, this is this whole idea of a growth mindset. Um, can you give an example or some examples of the growth mindset among high-level players? that you've noticed the difference and just. Um, absolutely. Absolutely. But I want to give a few thoughts on that. Yes. Prior to doing so, so remind me if I forget to actually answer your yeah. main question. No, but that's fine. I think we have beliefs about ourselves, about other people and about life. And these beliefs, they're not true and they're not wrong. They're just mental constructions. And a lot of people should experiences and through the people around them they create thinking flaws that really limit what they think they're capable of or even limit how worthy they feel themselves of being successful and as you rightly said Howard West is a great authority on mindset she wrote a book called mindset and she talks about growth mindset and fixed mindset growth mindset being the mindset that through effort and hard work we believe we can become successful and fixed mindset being the belief that we are born with uh, innate traits that we can't really change. And I want to share with you a study from her because the reason this topic is so important is people always ask me, how can you develop a growth mindset? How can parents influence their kids to have a growth mindset? And it's a very critical question and a simple thing like how we praise our kids can make all the difference. So Carl Dweck made this four-part study. And <clears throat> sorry, I'll just walk you through it. In the first step, she took kids and she divided them into two groups. Half of the group, they were praised with a growth mindset. They were given an easy puzzle. And when they solved that puzzle, they were told, wow, look, when you work hard, look what you're able to achieve. The other half were given the same puzzle but they were praised with a fixed mindset. They were told, wow, you're so gifted. You see, you're the best. Like, nobody can do what you do. In the second part, all the kids were offered either a very difficult challenge or a very easy challenge. Guess what the kids from the growth mindset group chose? Yeah, they wanted the difficult challenge because they, 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 they wanted effort. They, they, they knew effort mattered. Exactly. They enjoyed the challenge. They enjoyed pushing themselves. And the kids from the fixed mindset, 
mostly wanted the easy challenge. Next, all the kids got a very difficult cha uh, challenge, a puzzle that they wouldn't really be able to solve. Again, the kids from the growth mindset persisted longer and enjoyed the challenge. The kids from the fixed mindset, they didn't really enjoy it, and they gave up much earlier. Now, here's the most important and interesting part. In the fourth phase, they all got a very easy puzzle again, similar to the first puzzle. This time, the kids from the growth mindset group did even better than initially, but the kids from the fixed mindset, they did a little bit less well. They struggled a bit more. They were more self-conscious. So the gap between these two groups became much bigger just by how they were praised initially when they were solving those riddles. So that just to the importance of growth mindset and how you can develop it. Now, in terms of examples, I don't want to give names specifically, but I, I mean, I can tell you that someone like Nolak has a growth mindset. Like he believes through effort and hard work, he can achieve whatever he needs to achieve or wants to achieve. And that's why he's open to various forms of learning. You know, he'll, he'll, he'll take a mindfulness coach, he'll take a nutrition coach, he'll, he'll take a head coach, he'll have Becker or Ivan Yusevich, um join the team because he just wants to learn as much as he can and he feels that's where he gets a competitive edge. A guy like Nick Curious, I don't know him personally, but I'm assuming that he may have a fixed mindset because since he's been a junior, people always told him, you're the best, you're so great, you're so good. And let's assume he has a fixed mindset. So what that leads to is that he thinks he's very talented, but he knows that if he loses a match, people might actually think he's less talented. And that's very scary. So he needs to address that pressure. And how does he address that pressure? By giving the image that he doesn't actually care that much about winning. By maybe going to the pub before he plays against Rafa, not really having a professional coach, and just always giving a little bit less than 100%. And what's the price of that? He never, or up till now, doesn't fulfill its potential. Yeah, it's just like even in school, if you if you uh, if you know you're supposed to do well, that's pressure. So then you have to uh, live up to that expectation. So you you basically do other things such that you uh, are not perceived uh, that it's that big of a deal because it hurts too much. You know, it's like in school, if you're told you're really smart yeah, and is, and you got to hold up the grade, you got to study a lot. And then sometimes you go, well, you know, I didn't study. So it, it didn't hurt so much. I didn't do so well. You know. I could have done better. But I'm, I'm giving things in a very simplified form because yes, yeah. I think my next book is going to be called, I think it's going to be called Paradox of Winning. Because in the end, like the... The thing that is hard to explain, but I think that's the thing that will give anyone listening and any player the real breakthrough is to somehow sense and feel the contradicting forces that it takes to be a top tennis player. And what I mean in this specific instance is that pressure is part of the game. On the one hand, we need to embrace it. And on the other hand, we need to do things to eliminate it. It's like a push and pull dynamic. Yes, 
I, I know I agree 100. percent You mentioned the whole idea then, uh, and we're probably we'll probably address this a little later. Is the whole idea that that's where you have to compete like heck, you you fight like heck, but at the same time, because you don't if if, if the your opponent is somewhat equal or a little better, you don't know the outcome. So there's pressure, and the scoring system is increased is in uh, tremendous pressure. Um, you uh, have to find uh, ways, and I think you mentioned this before, um, that you find ways to say, well, I, I ultimately really don't care. You have to say, I don't care about the result, and that takes pressure off. And some people go, what do you mean you don't care? Well, I think you made the point that you have, to, like you say, there's this fine line. You have to say, look, I'm going to give everything I have, but nobody knows the outcome. So, you know, technically all I really care about is getting better. And that's what you said earlier. You said you have to be, you want to uh, get better. It's the process. It's I want to be the best player I can be. And the wins take care of themselves, but you're not so fixated on the results and the winning. And in that sense, you don't care. You care about getting better. You care about respecting the game. You care about all those things and doing everything possible that you possibly can give your best all the time. And then the other stuff takes care of it, uh, itself. That is that what you're getting at? More or less it's both. On the one hand, before a match, before a tournament, you want to have goals. You want to really specifically think, okay, I'd love to really, like as a like Djokovic or Nadal, you even think I'd love to win this tournament. I'm going to do whatever it takes. I'm going to make the most professional preparation. This is really the outcome I want. But then the second you step on the court, you need to completely detach from an outcome. You even yes. need to maybe, if you struggle with that, say, I don't care about the result. You know, this is only a tennis match. Life is so much more than tennis. What I do care, I'm going to give 120%. I'm going to enjoy competing. I'm going to enjoy pushing my limits. And if that guy plays better and he can like resist me coming back from all corners and like even when he thinks he won the match, I'll resurrect 15 times. If he can overcome that, I mean, if he can just really play better than me, then good for him. But I'm going to be a real warrior. I think that's the attitude. Yeah. And so I don't want to leave anything out. I'll maybe go through something systematically because I want to make sure we touch on these things. Regarding these limiting beliefs that you talk about, you know, it's, I think this is really well put. You said it's seeing the world through the lens of current skills. In other words, some people say, man, I, I'm only this good right now. They don't, they don't, and part of my job as a coach or other coaches is I call it, I help them do things. I get them to do things that they don't necessarily want, uh, want to do to get to a place they never thought they could be. And it's, most people, when they're in this current skill set, they don't see where they could actually be. And, and coaches help with that vision. So when, they, when they're in this limiting belief, it's, they see everything from their current skill, and they don't realize two years, three years, four years from now, they're going to be a totally different player and person. Yet they make decisions emotionally, uh, et cetera, based on the lens of the current skills. And you talk about these limiting beliefs, and I love the way you go through this. You say people have thoughts, feelings, actions, and results. And... Uh, you know, for example, you said, okay, one thought would be, I'm such a loser, I will never become a good player. The feeling is self-doubt, anger, frustration. The action is you just stop trying your best in practice and fight less in matches or quit. The result is, you know, it's more disappointing results. And you give that and you say the goal is to have more empowering thoughts. For example, and you mentioned this about, uh, for example, having a growth mindset, 
is you say, the thought is, the harder I work, the better I get. The feeling is you feel excited and ambitious each time you step on the court. The action is you play your game. You go for shots wherever appropriate. And the result is you start beating better players. And I think those are two great um, opposite, polar opposites that you give as examples on those limiting beliefs. Absolutely, and they become self-fulfilling um, processes. Like It's like a circle that keeps repeating itself. So when we have that limiting belief cycle, it's like the poor results will increase the, the negative belief, and the negative belief will increase the negative feelings, and it just keeps going round and round. And the same with the positive um, thought that you mentioned. And one of the key skills, you know, if I were to create a curriculum for school, this would be a skill I would promote because small kids, you know, I have two small kids now, they have it and we lose it. One of the key skills is imagination. And as a tennis player or as an entrepreneur or as an, anyone who's ambitious, we need to be able to imagine what our life looks like in the near and longer future and imagine us having skills that right now we don't even know how we're going to achieve them because in the end of the day, if you're practicing tennis and you're like surrounded by good coaches, then in two years, you're going to be a completely different player than today. Yet your imagination right now might really limit you to believe that you're only able to do what you can do right now with the current skills that you have. Yeah, no, exactly. And and this dovetails in what you were talking about. Like, for example, uh, when we talk about Erickson and Duckworth, when we talk about deliberate practice, you know, great players, great musicians, artists, etc. most people forget that it's very mundane. It's hours and hours of practice. You know, spelling bee champions, they don't particularly like practice. In fact, sometimes they don't like it at all. But the whole point is, um, a good friend of mine, uh, Carl Neufeld, one time uh, said that if you just improve 0.01 a day, 1% a day, that's all you care about. And, you know, that could be your serve. It could be your attitude. It could be your fitness. It could be a little bit of this. Maybe your forehand's off one day. Instead of fixating on that, you say, well, am I fitter than yesterday? Good. You know, you're better. And then when you keep going through that process... You never know where you're going to be in two years. You know, it's like compound interest. You're just going to, you're going to be better. There's, it's impossible not to be if you try hard enough. <laughs> I think people forget that. When I understand, but there is one caveat to that. Yeah. You know, you can play five hours a day tennis. Yes. And actually not improve, maybe even get worse because you've got like uh, conditioning mistakes that like um, limit your game. And so the thing with um, deliberate practice is that you really need to set specific goals to have a coach yes. who knows how to achieve those goals, who will give you feedback. And then, yes, you have exercises that are often painful because change is painful. Like, let's say you're changing your grip on the forehand and you need to um, hit a, a drill of like 100 shots. It's painful. You know, it goes against your intuition. You feel like you're holding that thing wrong. And Deliberate practice, yeah, it's like someone drilling in your brain sometimes. But like a true competitor needs to feel this hunger to become better and to like actually enjoy the suffering and the process of developing that skill. And you can see it in any area, you know, whether it's kids studying in university or um, athletes or musicians. It's really the skill of 
doing the things we're not good at in a systematic way with a great coach on a consistent basis that will lead us to more success. And actually, I think it was Amis Erickson who did the study with um, violin players. And he went to a school and um, he wanted to see what the difference was between the violin players who would become professionals and those who would just become basic school teachers. And it was how much time they spend by themselves practicing the things they learned in the school that really determined how successful they would be. So no, no magic, no crazy script. It's putting in the hours, but in a very deliberate way. And there is actually, um, um, how do you call it, like a point of negative return. I, I don't know if you can say that, but deliberate practice is not something you can do for 10 hours a day because it takes a lot of energy. It's very difficult. So deliberately practicing for two or three hours is probably much more valuable than standing on the tennis court for 10 hours and just practicing half-heartedly. And I say this because even at the highest level on the tour, I think the way a guy, an average guy, ranked 80 or 150 practices compared to the top guys is quite different. It looks the same. You know, they step on the court, they hit drills, but it's this deliberate aspect that probably even intensifies the practice of the top guys, and which is probably the reason that some guys, um, maybe even a guy like Roger Federer, can spend less time on a practice court, but still enjoy bigger progress. Right. Yeah, the deliberate practice is a big issue. Um, and yeah, I have a discussion on my website, but I, that's how I coach. It's the whole idea of you have a set of specific stretch goal, you concentrate 100%, you get immediate feedback, and you refine it and repeat it. The issue is most people have a hard time, A, finding these stretch goals that are uncomfortable. you got to develop your weaknesses. And then secondly, to concentrate for a long period of time. And most people have a hard time just doing that, just like you said, and you, let alone for hours on end. So, um, yeah, that's uh, that's a good word there. You mentioned how do you... you no, know, concentration is a skill. Say it again? Sorry, but concentration is a skill. Concentration yes. is a skill one can learn and practice. And um, there are things one can do that enhance concentration, and there are things that limit our concentration. I'll give you two examples. Great. The magic pill, in my opinion, for mental practice is something that probably everyone knows, most people tried, many stop after a while, even though it's actually pleasurable, it makes us happier, it makes us healthier, it increases our focus, and I'm speaking about meditation, and I think more and more top performers realize that practicing 10, 15, 20 minutes of meditation every single day really allows us to silence those voices inside our head, allows us to become an observer of what goes on in our mind and helps us become a much more focused person. And on the other hand, the thing that really prevents us from being able to concentrate and focus are distractions like always playing with our phone, always checking emails, always browsing on social media. The reason these things aren't great is not because I'm against social media. I think if you designate half an hour a day and you do your Instagram and everything, that's cool. But constantly wanting to check your phone while you're doing other things, that's exactly what's teaching your mind to, to be distracted. You know, you'll be on the court 
and you'll notice like every movement from everyone who, who's around the court. You'll have thoughts interrupting your head. You'll have like thoughts like, oh my God, I still need to do shopping tomorrow or <laughs> now don't do a double fold right now. This would be a terrible, like you just lose the ability to be focused and calm. I, I uh, yeah, that's, uh, I think that's uh, an accurate assessment. One of the things that, uh, there's actually studies out, and I know some colleges actually uh, uh, prohibit or don't allow phone use before a match and after a match because they have to, and we're going to talk about this because you mentioned some things here about how to improve your practice to match correlation. You know, why do you practice one way and not play another way? And there's one of these reasons is exactly what you're talking about is the inability to visualize, to just calm down and think about things, uh, see things that... um, uh, that could be happening, and actually reassessing your matches after you've lost or won. Say, okay, sit down, re- you know, visualize, re- re-visualize, see, okay, what could I have done, and actually picture it in your mind's eye, and move on to the, you know, to the next skill. But there's actually some schools that don't let their uh, players use this, uh, you know, uh, media before and after matches because there's actual. Uh, you know, there are actual studies and evidence that, you know, talk about how it affects your brain and uh, your ability to, uh, you know, to progress. It's, uh, it's quite interesting. I, I don't have the studies with me, but I've had several uh, friends uh, uh, mention this and some of the schools have made those decisions. You talk about how to bring the A game from practice uh, to the match. You know, the big question is, you know, many want to do this is why can't they? You know, there's limiting thought or... Um, you know, on this. And, and you said, uh, one of the things you mentioned is they need to embrace challenges and regularly play important tournaments. Well, how does, I'm, I'm curious, how does one embrace challenges if they have a limiting belief or a closed or a fixed mindset? How would you get somebody who, you know, they play practice really well, um, but they underperform in matches, you know, how do you, what would be some examples, you know, you go through this in your, in your, in your, uh, online, uh, book, um, what are some ways to get somebody there? Look, um, I think the first and most important thing, and this was maybe the biggest lesson in my life, is to teach kids that our thoughts, they're not real. They're like a construction we do inside our heads. And once someone understands that, we understand how powerful our mind is. And, you know, you can just, like do a short exercise and like get up and rate how good you feel right now about yourself from one to 10. And let's say someone feels a little bit tired and sluggish and says, I'm at a three. And then you get them to do like a few things, like really stretch their body, start moving their body, like start smiling, you know, really getting the physiology of a positive person and then start thinking thoughts like, I feel good, I feel great, I'm super excited today, maybe pumping your fist, maybe even listening to really energetic music. And then I ask you, how do you feel from 1 to 10? And within a minute, we can like upgrade like our ratings by 2, 3, 4 points. And the point here is just that we can really control what we think and what we feel. And once we understand that, then we need to know that on the one hand, changing how we think is a process that takes time. And a good way to really change the way we think is to feed our mind with positive things, you know, to read inspiring books, to watch inspiring matches, to read biographies of players we like, to, like, not watch negative things. You know, I, I for example, for a long time didn't watch 
TV movies that were violent, especially at nighttime, because I just really thought it affects how I sleep. On a more imminent basis, you want to create rituals, you know, that bring you into your best performance state. Things that you do before you practice, before you play a big match, things you do during a match, things you do after a match. And in the beginning, rituals and habits are not easy. But like everything, you know, they become natural if we really put in the deliberate work initially. Basically, everything we do, more or less, are habits that we've programmed ourselves to do. You know, if you look at your day, probably 90% of the things are repetitive every single day. And so we can consciously design the habits that we want to have in our life. And one of the most important habits is to control what we allow um, into our head and also how we respond to certain situations. And one of my favorite, most inspiring books is called Man's Search for Meaning from Viktor Frankl. And he was a Holocaust survivor. He explained like, why most people couldn't survive these terrible, devastating concentration camps and what those who did survive do differently. And one of the things they did differently was they gave themselves meaning even in these really difficult um, moments. But relevant for here is one thing that he teaches is that freedom really means increasing the gap between stimulus and response. And what that means is we have stimulation all the time. You know, someone curses you on the street you might impulsively want to like shout back, but that's not freedom because that's like you're acting like automated, you know, like almost like an animal, like out of control. Yeah, like Pavlov's dog. Yeah. That happens. Exactly. Real freedom is if you can, that happens, you're upset, but you create a gap. You say, okay, I don't respond immediately. And then during this gap, you actually manage to slow down and you manage to think, you know, you don't know what that guy experienced today. And anyway, why should I care? It's like his problem, not mine. <laughs> and you just don't respond in a negative way. Right. Well, on the on the tennis court, along those lines you mentioned, so for example, how would you, uh, you know, uh, prevent underperformance, you know, getting uh, from the practice, uh, from practice to the match? And you mentioned things like, you know, learn how to play under pressure. And this would be an example of a deliberate practice. Um, you know, for example, with my players, sometimes I'll have them start down love 30. And there's a bit of a, a consequence if they don't hold, you know, or they, they're returning. And if they're up 30 love returning, they have to break. And, and there's ways you can impose pressure. You mentioned things like have somebody on the court. It can be kind of fun. I, I call it uh, smack talking. You know, we'll have two, one team versus the other. And then you can say anything you want, anytime you want, trying to distract the person and they're playing. Um, maybe create, you said, practice at different times, make it uncomfortable. And because when you show up for a tennis match, you don't always get your favorite court, favorite time, favorite weather. And, you know, so you were saying, well, there's ways to kind of help you go from practice to a match like that. If you practice uncomfortable things, you can play in uncomfortable settings or you meant you have these nice little things called mental workouts and, um, and you say deliberately rehearsing tough match situations, you know, so you don't visualize ahead of time. Okay, I'm going to play this person who's annoying. They make bad calls. What am I going to do about it? Um, uh, you mentioned... Exactly. The other you know, you play, someone, you play someone who might, like, give poor calls. You know, you play, like, a, a club match or whatever, and, and the guy in your mind is obviously cheating, you know, when when you come close. Instead of, like, being angry at it, like, use it as an opportunity to say, great, you know, I'm really going to, like, 
learn how to handle this difficult situation because, of course, if I hit a winner and the guy calls it out, that's devastating. But what am I going to do? You know, am I going to argue every point? Like, we're adults, he judges or she judges their side, I judge my side. So I'll just accept it and I'll use it to become mentally tougher to rebound from that disappointment. And absolutely, like, doing the uncomfortable in a deliberate manner till, till we become comfortable in it and we can work on something else. You mentioned something. I, I, I'm going to go through a couple of these. You, you talk about post-match routine. You talked about routines earlier, especially after a painful loss. And there's something in here that I think you really said, and maybe it's in another section, but you said one of the things that's really important is that players have to have a sense of safety, that they're not going to be judged whether they win or lose, that the, you know, people love them whether they win or lose, that there's not, they don't, it allows them to play freely and not to, to worry about that. Um, you know, not to worry about uh, future what-ifs or the past failures, but to play relaxed and play in the present. Um, after a match, let's say a painful loss, you go through this mental workout number four, and you say, allow yourself to experience emotions. And I think this is when you say about mindfulness. You just say, okay, I'm bummed, <laughs> you know. Or I think a good point you make is a lot of times when people win, I get this all the time with juniors, even college players, is they come off and they won – and they, but the first thing they're going to say is, yeah, but man, that was just bad tennis. Or I didn't, you know, instead of just patting themselves on the back and say, yeah, I won, that's good. Okay, a win is a win, you know, and, and be happy about it. Um, and then you mentioned some really good things about after they lose. How do you, how do you handle a painful loss? Maybe you could kind of go through some, uh, some tips on that for people, how they learn from that. Okay, let me just uh, go one by one with a few things. So yeah. Don't forget anything remind me (laughs) but on psychological safety google is known for like doing a lot of studies you know to really create the best working environment and they made studies on psychological safety and they realized that people are the most productive when they don't need to be scared about making mistakes all the time they can admit to making mistakes and speak about making mistakes and learn from mistakes and that's something that we often miss in tennis that people feel embarrassed to get um, severe consequences from losing, you know, maybe potentially angry coaches, angry sponsors, angry parents, and they literally become scared to lose. So that's one thing we need to address. Like the people around us, they need to accept and love us for who we are. And with regards to our tennis, the one thing they can demand is that we give our best. But what they shouldn't demand are specific results. In fact, I believe often when you're working on your game, you know. You may do things in a match that in the short run don't serve you. Let's say you're working on becoming more aggressive, becoming better at playing volley. Then maybe in the short run, even if you lose a few matches, you want to do that. You want to really come in in the right moment. And you want to be able to tell yourself, you know what? In the short run, I might lose matches that I could win by playing a safer game. In the long run, I'm going to benefit. Now, the second thing that you mentioned Remind me. Oh, I was talking about ah, how to deal with painful losses. Before that, oh, like when we play a match, we want to get ourselves into an amazing performance state. It means we want to suppress most of the time negative thoughts. We almost want to be superhuman because if we get upset after losing a point and we're upset for five minutes, we might really lose five minutes of opportunities and that would be uh, like 
one or two breaks. It could mean the set. It could mean the match. So the, that, that's one aspect. But the confusing thing is we need to be human beings. And so we have emotions. We have feelings. And what people often forget is after the match, we want to connect to our authentic self. We want to, first of all, as you say, when we win matches, we want to experience joy and happiness, even if it's an easy match, even if it's a weak opponent. This is what drives our motivation. And also this is what drives our confidence. So we really want to allow these positive emotions. But the thing is, it's very hard to experience positive emotions if we suppress negative emotions. And also if we suppress negative emotions, they'll show up at random moments out of our control. So we should have a safe environment where we can express what we feel, where we can share with someone how disappointed we are after losing, where we can talk about the fears we have, you know, that we're not progressing as fast as we want or that, like, the pressure is too high or that we have money problems. We really want to get these things out. And, like, there's a lot of research showing that when we express ourselves, then the weight upon our shoulder becomes much lighter. And then, third of all, how do we do, deal with disappointing matches? To me, this actually is a philosophical question. There's a practical aspect, but from a philosophical point of view, we need to believe that what maybe a guy called Ray Dalio actually said, one of the um, most um, prominent investors, he said in his book that success equals pain plus reflection, meaning that from setbacks, we can really grow and learn, provided that we think about what happened. So after a disappointing match and after really expressing our emotions, we want to go to the match in our head with our coach, to the key moment. And we want to think about what we did in the match, what we could do better if we would play that match again, and what we can learn from that match, maybe what aspects of our game we need to work on, or maybe what performance skills we need to work on. And if we do that after every match, and if we take those insights into our practice regime, then without a doubt, we're going to become a better player. And if our goal is progress and not win, and if we do, as your friend said, we become 0.1% better every single day, then without a doubt, the results are going to come. That's uh, that's really good, and and I think some of the things you mentioned in here, folks, if you're going to read uh, read his book, um, and it's available online. Can you uh, share your website if they want to go to that? Sure. So it's www.mentalgameoftennis.com, and uh, I'll send you the link so you can put it in the show notes. Yeah. Um, so, for example, he talks about performance gears, and when he talks about, you know, when we're in performance gear, we have match rituals, we're changing uh, changeover rituals, end of set rituals. I think those are really, uh, really uh, helpful um, hints there. And then he says, when we have the authenticity gear, that's when we want to express our emotions, because when we're performance gear, we're just we're focusing on winning, and and and, and um, you know, we don't want our emotions getting in the way. Um, so we do have to do that. And then he also talks about a recovery gear, which is take time off. Um, uh, you have to have, you know, me time, that sort of thing. Um, 
so that that all kind of uh, stems from what you were just talking about in terms of um, you know dealing with the emotions. You know, you mentioned here, and I think this is a really important point: is a mental debrief after you lose. You know, and it shouldn't be too long. You said, you know, d- be done with it. You know, it's like after your uh, the match is maybe an hour or so. You know, uh, you think about this and then move on. You know, go have some ice cream or do something else. Um, uh, you know, you mentioned about recalling or analyzing, replaying the you know the match in your mind, and that's solely not to beat yourself up, but to improve. Say, okay, yeah, you know what, I. I shouldn't have chipped that return on that. I I, be, I need to be more aggressive. So my practice, I'm going to practice situations where there's pressure. You know, as much as you can do in practice, it's hard to really uh, simulate it. But I'm going to work on driving it under pressure and not chipping. And, you know, things like that. And you go through your match. And, and so that's that's what you're trying to communicate on that, correct? Absolutely. And I think the key emotion for that process is curiosity. You want to go through the match with a curious mind, not with a judging mind. Oh, that's and that's and that's that and that's that mindfulness, you know, where it's there's not an a there's not a uh, a value attached to it. It's like, look, uh, yeah, you don't want to be crit- uh, criticized or judged, um, but more like, yeah, I missed it. This is what I got to do um, next time, and then that uh, kind of takes away the the personal hit on the person. You know, people, you know, a lot of times people associate, hey, I missed a shot, therefore. I suck. Well, no, <laughs> you just missed a shot. You know, that's all. It's it, there's no correlation exactly. to your. Per- to, and like, to, what could I do better if I would be in that situation again? You know, like Einstein once said, insanity means doing the same thing over and over again, but expecting a different outcome. And if we analyze our lives or our careers, often this is what we're doing, and that's what separates the top performers. They find the nuances that aren't triggering the outcomes that they desire and they tweak them and play with them and change them until they find the right kind of uh, habits and action steps and game plans to really perform the way they want to perform. Yes. You mentioned, and we're, we're heading towards the end here, folks, um, but he mentioned in, in, uh, in his writing here, he says, how can I train myself to become more focused and calm in a match? And, um, you know, we talked about this before is that we want to perform best. We perform best when we're relaxed or in the present, not worrying about past failures or worry about what ifs, et cetera. Um, you know, one of the things um, he states, he says, you know, we want to be aware of our caring too much. We need to have big emotions and work hard, our big ambitions and work hard. Equally, uh, we need to enter matches not caring so much about the outcome. You should work to get to the point where you don't care about the results as much as caring about giving your best. And we hear that all the time. We talk about process over product. Um, and I think, you know, for a lot of people, you know, if they can just maybe kind of focus on that, that helps take a lot of the pressure off when they're competing it helps them play more relaxed i agree the challenge is that uh, in the end of the day in order to play your best without caring you really need to believe in yourself and we believe in ourselves when we invest in our personal development when we work on not only becoming a better tennis player but also working on our mental aspects of our game on our emotional aspects of our game just really working on becoming the kind of person we want to be. When we do that, that's when it becomes easy to step onto a court with the attitude, I'm going to give my best, but I don't care about the outcome. So on the one hand, it's a tactical piece of advice. On the other hand, 
it's really part of our personal evolution and being able to not be ego-driven just because we intrinsically value ourselves enough to know that giving our best is all we need to do. Yeah, that's that's really good advice. I mean, let's face it. I mean, we do care. I mean, I care. I mean, I'm a competitive person. I care if I win or not. You know, I put on all the time. I want to win. That's what drives me to to chase down a ball, you know. <laughs> um, but there's that fine 100%. line. I, but but the fine line is ultimately if I lose, it doesn't matter. It doesn't define who I am. And that's, you know, partly what you're getting at. So what I'm really getting at is you're competing against yourself because that's mm-hmm. the one competition you control. Yeah. The reason why you can't care too much about outcomes is because as much as you can't control how your opponent plays, you also can't judge what other people will think about you. And when we care about things we can't control, at some level it feels very disempowering. And so we want to shift and focus on the things that are really within our power of control yes right and i think for people listening uh, one of the things that's uh key in tennis is the outcome really is not all that certain i mean you know it's one thing if there's a huge disparity you know if uh if, you know uh, you're playing somebody that uh is just really not that good you know for sure right off the outfit but you never know maybe the maybe you sprain an ankle halfway through or you know whatever so you know, ultimately with the the scoring system and if you're playing somebody that's fairly equal or just a little better, we don't know the outcome and you fight like heck to uh, to try and control. But uh, like Alone saying is uh, what you can feel good about is controlling the things you can control. So, um, hey, Alone, I'd like to ask you a question. We, yeah, go ahead. One, one more point on that, sir. What we also said is that, you know, like even at the highest level, you barely win more than 55% of the points. So it means you need to really accept that. Right. You're losing almost half the points in matches that you win. And uh, and that just, again, shows that you can't control the outcome of individual points. Right, and those are the best players in the world. I mean, Nadal's one of the best ground strokers in the world, and he only wins 50% of the point, 51% of the points from the baseline. So, you know, what do the rest of the people expect? You know, yeah, you're going to lose some points, you know. So, yeah, exactly. Um, I ask every guest, um, and what, and you mentioned a couple here, but if you had to give, what are the top five characteristics of all great players at pretty much any level, what would those be? You mentioned the escalating professionalism, uh, their competitors, uh, what do you think the f- top five characteristics are? So I think I'd give like a, a few performance characteristics, as you said, they're competitive, they're focused. They're resilient. I'd also give like character traits. Like um, I think the really big champions, the guys that we admire, they have integrity, um, and I think they have joy. You know, they have joy. They they love what they do. That's really good. Yeah, yeah, because they gotta. Yeah, you gotta enjoy what you're doing out there when you're putting so much time into it. Well, that's fantastic. Um, and, and discipline, discipline. Of course, discipline also. Okay, so discipline. Good. Passion. Well, Alon, it's, uh, it's been a blast talking with you. I know you you got a full day ahead of you over there on the other side of the uh, ocean, and I'm uh, really appreciate, uh, appreciative of you coming onto the show and spending time with us, so thanks a ton. Thank you, Steve. It was really fun talking to you, and I love what you do, and I hope we'll talk and meet in the future. 
yeah, we'll just stay on the line there and uh, while I just give some closing comments here. And again, folks, uh, you can go to his website. Again, uh, what was that website? And we'll have it on the we'll have it on the uh, podcast um, and the blog uh, for everybody. But maybe just give that a hit in case they're you know uh, out and about and they got a pen pen in their hand and they want to uh, type it out. What is uh, what do we got? Sure, it's www.mentalgameoftennis.com. And on that site, I have the ultimate guide to becoming a mentally tougher tennis player that you mentioned. It's a free guide, which I believe is the most extensive free guide available on that subject. It's over 20,000 words, and um, I really share some of my best experiences from the tennis world and some of my greatest insights having worked with top players but also players who never made it yeah and that's uh that's important because they're still great players <laughs> well um exactly and uh, you know it really l- lets us like distinguish what it takes to make it and, and often it's surprising it's not as we talked about just being born with a lot of talent because um as we talked a lot of top juniors never make it in professional tennis and vice versa and i think there are a lot of lessons that we can learn from that that's great. That's great. Well, folks, you've been listening to the Coach Steve Clark PhD show uh, with Alone Kashari and um, on mental toughness and high, uh, high, you know, basically performing at a high level in various aspects. Uh, be sure to like it or share it uh, with your friends and go to my website um, at coachsteveclarkphd.com. You can also follow me on uh, my Coach Steve Clark PhD Facebook page and my Twitter at Coach Steve PhD. There you'll find blogs, uh, podcast resources, video discussion, um, and more. I'd also like to thank Wayne Bryan um, for doing the uh, introduction uh, to the show, as well as Mike and Bob, Bob Bryan for their music. I've always appreciated their support. Um, and you can uh, send your comments and questions for future shows. And sometimes I can take those questions and connect with guests and they get back to us and we learn more. Uh, you can reach me at Steve at CoachSteveClarkPhD.com. I always like to leave with a, uh, a thought or two. And um, I think uh, Alone made a great point is that you really have to uh, have good, you know, uh, a belief in yourself and uh, we need to have a growth mindset, as we've learned. Um, and uh, I just think those are some really important uh, factors there. And a- anything, uh, one last thought you might have alone for us uh, before we close off? Yes, absolutely. I think anyone who gets to play tennis, whether as a hobby or more seriously, is privileged. It's such a great game. It can teach us so much about ourselves, about what it means to be a competitor, what it means to be a great human being, what it means to build true character traits. So just enjoy the journey and give your best. Much appreciated. And like I say at the end of every show, let her rip. <laughs>